Journey to Fame and Fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Barnum Museum has a unique treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to millions of ordinary people, as well as royalty and high society. These letters offer a unique glimpse into the life of P.T. Barnum as a husband, father, mentor, and entrepreneur. Join us as we travel back in time and learn about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum through his own words. If you enjoy this episode, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast to help our rankings and support the Barnum Museum. And now, on with the show. A good education is better than riches. It's time to check in again on the Barnum Family Circle after several weeks of topics pertaining to business concerns. In contrast to the exceptionally long letters Barnum wrote to his uncle and museum manager, the letters he wrote to his daughters and wife while he was traveling in Europe are of a more ordinary length, though amply filled with interesting information. This time, we will explore a letter to Caroline, the Barnum's 12-year-old daughter who had been sent to a boarding school in Washington, D.C., and a letter to Charity, Barnum's wife, who was at home in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Included in the latter is a message to their 5-year-old daughter, Helen. Both letters were written on January 26, 1846, in Dundee, Scotland. Reading them became all the more delightful upon realizing that young Charles Stratton, General Tom Thumb, was right there with Barnum as he was writing these letters, piping up with his own messages for Caroline and Helen as readily as if he was their sibling. Barnum's priority for daughter Caroline was that she should attend a school where learning the French language would be immersive, requiring that she speak French most of the day and read school books in French. To that end, she left Bridgeport in the autumn of 1845 to attend the boarding school that had been chosen for her meeting her father's requirements for what subjects she would study. She had been at the school no more than four months when Barnum received a letter from her composed in French. He must have beamed with pride as he read it, for he made a point of telling others about his daughter's accomplishment. To Caroline, he replied, I received your letter of the 17th instance with great pleasure, first because it told me of your good health and your industry at your studies and second, because the writing or orthography and composition are excellent. And if it was written without any assistance, as I trust it was, I am quite proud of your improvement in those branches of study. I hope you will continue to apply yourself closely to your studies, and if so, you will soon have a good education, which is more valuable than gold, and which will always be to you a source of true happiness. If, as you say, you are obliged to speak French all day, except an hour at recess, I am not afraid, but that you will soon acquire the language. Though doing well in her studies, Caroline had been quite homesick. 
Barnum knew this, but his previous letter to her did not ring with the sympathetic tone one would expect from a parent. He thought occasional trips home to Connecticut would make it worse, and she should just stick it out, a tough-love approach. Ironically, he himself had been feeling tortured by homesickness while in France, and even upon returning to the United Kingdom, it had not abated entirely. Confiding to his daughter, he wrote, I am very homesick, but must grin and bear it, hoping that it will all be for the best. This was probably phrased to offer advice to her as well, though he now had reason to believe she was adjusting to her new environment. Barnum had learned that his half-brother Philo had also decided to send his daughter to school in Washington, though it is not clear if she went to the same school, and surely Caroline would be happier having her cousin there. He remarked to Charity, I give him and his wife great credit for having sent Minerva away to school. A good education is better than riches, and much easier kept. Barnum's concept of a good education combined traditional and progressive ideas about female education. He wanted Caroline to study the usual subjects, though noted they should be chosen for their appropriateness for girls, for example, botany and biology over other branches of science like chemistry. On the other hand, he expressed an enlightened view that a young woman's education should include an understanding of government. Since Caroline was attending school in the nation's capital, he wanted her to avail herself of the chance to witness democracy in action, and perhaps Caroline herself expressed a wish to see Congress. Barnum seemed animated by the opportunity when he wrote her. I suppose Congress was hardly open during the holidays, and therefore that you lost your treat. Tell the mistress I would like her to let you go one day and see the proceedings in Congress. If possible, get some person who knows the members to go at the same time and point out the principal characters. By that means, you have the chance of seeing all the first men of the nation, and perhaps of hearing some of them speak. To put that in context, this was Congress during the administration of President James K. Polk. Both the Senate and House of Representatives were majority Democrat at the time, the primary opposition party being the Whigs. Issues that Caroline might have heard argued would have centered on the Monroe Doctrine, the Texas border disputes that led to the Mexican-American War, and the treaty that established the Oregon Territory. Reviewing Barnum's two letters, one to Charity and the other to Caroline, it is interesting to see what he chose to tell one but not the other. For instance, he informed Charity that his health was excellent and did not even imply he was feeling homesick, nor, wisely, did he mention his sleepless nights worrying about her, fearing she might not survive the birth of their fourth child. As far as we know, Caroline had no idea that she would soon become sister to another sibling. Her father did not even hint at it. Silence on matters of childbirth was not unusual in that time period, perhaps intended in part to shield the child from anxiety about her mother and spare her from sorrow should the infant not survive its first few days, as was not uncommon. The Barnums had lost their two-year-old daughter Frances in April of 1844, so the fear of another loss was palpable. Caroline was almost eleven when Frances died, old enough to have understood and felt grief. On a much happier note, Barnum did tell both Charity and Caroline about his recent splurge, purchasing a selection of papier-mâché items ranging from furniture to an inkstand. Papier-mâché is a malleable mixture of shredded paper and glue, or flour and water. The pulp hardens after being formed into the desired shape and left to dry. 
The objects were then finished in black lacquer, decorated with gold and polychrome colors, and highlighted with inlays of mother-of-pearl or abalone shell. These iridescent materials gave a beautiful luster and exotic appearance. Barnum described his purchase to Charity, telling her, I bought $200 worth of fancy articles the other day in Glasgow for our house, when we have one. They are all in papier-mâché and very elegant. I sent them to Liverpool to Mr. Lyon, where they will remain till I go home. They consist of two work tables, one card table, one work box, one pair of pole fire screens with stands to match, one chess table inlaid with pearl, one Chinese table, another fire screen, two portfolios to hold prints, one pair hand screens, and several other things, including, of course, one inkstand. A fool and his money are soon parted. Considering Caroline's youth, Barnum shared with her a surprising amount of detail about his museum business, including his new partnership with Uncle Allenson Taylor and his purchase of Peel's collection in New York with the idea of showing it in New Orleans. He also noted, I have engaged a couple of very handsome, fat children to go to the museums in America next April, and offered the news that General's new play has been translated into English with many improvements, and we expect to have him play it in London before we go to America. Aware that Charity was extremely anxious to have him home again, Barnum gave two reasons for his delay until spring, though other correspondents suggested he expected his return might be later, in early summer. His retelling of business affairs focused on the European tour rather than the stateside prospects he shared with Caroline. The perspective he related to Charity on earning money abroad suggests he had been criticized at home for his success with the American Museum. The last time we were in London, a few weeks ago, hundreds were unable to get in, although we had the large Egyptian hall, and a fine hall we made of it. I want one more dig at them, then I'll be satisfied. I had rather make the money in England than in America, for all the money made out of John Bull and carried to America is so much capital added to our country, and nobody can say that I am living on the money of my neighbors. It would be so unpleasant and even dangerous to cross the broad Atlantic at this season that I cannot bear the thought of it. I must wait till the spring, and in the meantime, I hope to be busily and profitably engaged. The general Tom Thumb tour in Europe had had its highs and lows, but Barnum, ever the optimist, felt they would do well to make a serious go of it touring through the UK once again. Charles, or General, as Barnum called him, was probably unaware of his mentor's conflicting desires to be at home, yet continue building his financial success. Though a very precocious child, Charles was still a mischievous young boy, and while Barnum was penning his letters to Charity and Caroline, it seems he was interrupted by Charles time and again. Barnum told his daughter, He is now stealing my tea while I am writing. General sends his love and a kiss, and says he will come to Washington to see you if he can. He says, certainement oui. French for certainly yes. He'll talk French to you when he gets home. Likewise, Barnum amused Helen by telling her, The general sends his little love, and declared he would like to kiss you. And if he would not, I know who would. Who do you guess? Barnum revealed their daily jesting over Helen's innocent silliness. General and me have lots of fun about you almost every day. Today I told him the Red Riding Hood story just as you used to tell it to me. And I told him how you kept school on the Great Western Steamship, and I was your scholar. And you whipped me when I was a bad boy, and you called me Taylor. Then you called Recess, and before I could get out, 
I heard you tinkling the little bell ring-a-ding-ding-ding-ding for the boys to come in, so I could not get out at all. General laughed and said you served me right. Burnham also had a funny story to share with Charity, connected to the marketing ploy that claimed General Tom Thumb to be six years older than he actually was. Born on January 4, 1838, Charles turned eight in 1846, and due to his recent birthday, his parents thought he needed to be reminded of his advertised age, in case someone asked. Barnum told his wife, The little general continues first-rate. He talks French like a book, and he grows cunning every day. His parents told him the other day that it was his birthday, that he was fourteen. Well, says General, then I am old enough to go according, so, Father, I shall go off to the theater tonight alone. But what do you want to go to the theater for? asked his mother. Oh, to go on a spree and go home with a gal, replied the little general. Finally, there are intriguing comments about gifts for Mrs. Brattell. The Brattells were among Barnum's London friends, and in December the husband, Thomas Brattell, had printed out the playbook for Hop o' My Thumb. This was the improved translation of Le Petit Poussé that Barnum had asked Albert R. Smith to write for Charles. While in Scotland, Barnum had purchased an expensive gift for Brattell's wife, a highly coveted fashion accessory of the time period, and he mentioned it to charity. I bought her a five-pound paisley shawl the other day in Glasgow, which I shall present to her when I go to London. His next remark is puzzling. I hope you will not fail to have a fine and good rocking chair sent to Mrs. Brattell. That does not sound like an easy item to select and ship, and it's curious as to why anyone would choose to send the gift of a rocking chair to someone in England. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you want to support us, consider subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a review. It really helps us out. Now, let's dive into the next segment. A great blessing to the poor. The letters in P.T. Barnum's copybook only occasionally refer to his political views, but in late January of 1846, Barnum was moved to share his opinion about one of many hot topics in the United Kingdom at that time, the repeal of Corn Laws. The main point of sharing his comments on politics here is that they provide a window on his view of society and belief that a good and fair government should benefit ordinary people rather than favor the rich at the expense of the poor. Barnum had grown up in a family of modest means, a humble background he never tried to hide, and both his experience living in New York City and his line of work had brought him in contact with people who were poor or even destitute. Barnum happened to be touring with General Tom Thumb during the early years of the Great Famine, a tragic and protracted period of mass starvation and rampant disease in Ireland. He realized that the British Corn Laws contributed in great measure to that terrible time of hunger, since import tariffs effectively put imported grains beyond the reach of people at a time when food was in desperately short supply. By way of explanation, or a reminder of a long-forgotten history lesson, the term corn did not just mean the product of maize plants as Americans think of it. The word corn applied to all cereal grains, including wheat, rye, barley, and oats. We've seen in Barnum's letters expressions of empathy for people who struggled in poverty. His comments about the impacts of the Corn Laws, and more broadly about free trade and government, paint a more complete picture of Barnum's worldview 
and point to a deep desire to see America's experiment in democracy succeed. Barnum wrote to both his wife Charity and his friend Moses Kimball about hearing Lord John Russell speak on the subject of the Corn Laws at a meeting in Glasgow, Scotland. Lord Russell was a Whig and liberal statesman in the British Parliament, and on June 30, 1846, he would begin his first term as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Sir Robert Peel, a conservative, was Prime Minister at the time Barnum was writing. As Barnum explained to Charity in his letter of January 26th, I was in Glasgow a few weeks ago, and the freedom of the city was presented to Lord John Russell. I went to the meeting, having been presented with a ticket, and heard Lord John make a capital speech in favor of abolishing the Corn Laws. They must be repealed this session of Parliament, and the people of this realm will at least have the chance of tasting untaxed bread, or if not altogether untaxed, for everything is taxed here except smoke and impudence, it will be at least free from foreign duty, and that will be a great blessing to the poor. The speech was still on his mind three days later when he penned a letter to Moses Kimball in Boston, telling him, I went to hear Lord John Russell the other day at Glasgow. He gave us a crack anti-corn law speech, and I was quite delighted. Indeed, since that time, Sir Robert Peel has given the aristocracy a severe thrust under the ribs, and come out himself in favor of free trade in corn. Despite being a conservative leader, Sir Robert Peel had on several occasions reversed his initial stance on legislation and instead supported liberal legislation such as Catholic emancipation. The Corn Laws favored aristocratic landholders, and even years before the Great Famine, Peel had begun to change his thinking on such tariffs and import restrictions, and lean toward free trade. The catastrophic crop failures in Ireland tipped the scale and propelled him to favor repeal of the Corn Laws, supporting the free trade stance of the Whigs, who would become the Liberal Party. That decision brought an end to Peel's second term as Prime Minister, and he resigned on June 29, 1846. Barnum continued in his letter to Kimball, Oh, my dear fellow, the march of liberal principles is onward in this country. Not a new ministry is formed, not a parliament meets, not a move takes place either by the minister or people without advancing the cause of free trade and liberal principles. I trust in God that the spirit of non-protection may become general, in our own country as well as everywhere else. For I verily believe that free and mutual intercourse and exchange of commodities between all nations of the earth would establish universal peace and prosperity, and an everlasting friendship throughout the world. Further emphasizing his beliefs and hopes for the future, he wrote, I believe free trade to be the great ne plus ultra of commerce and social liberty, the death blow to aristocracy and tyranny, and the great desideratum of the universe. God grant its principles may extend and prosper. Coincidentally at this time, Barnum was actively working to hire a poor family to work for him under contract in America. They were to go in April when the transatlantic crossing would be safer than in winter. In the meantime, he needed to help them get by. Barnum had met the mother with her two fat children, plus two more. The two other children seemed to have been kept out of sight. Feeling sorry that her efforts to earn a living by showing the two fat boys had only brought her a pittance, he offered an opportunity for the mother and her children to come to America, where he would exhibit the brothers at the American Museum and tour them if things worked out well. He mentioned to a couple of correspondents that he had engaged a couple of very handsome fat children, but also seemed to have some regrets about the decision because the boys were not as large as he wished. 
While in Dundee, he replied to a letter from his agent in Glasgow on January 28, 1846, remarking, That certainly is a big family and bigger in numbers than anything else, and indeed were they to do well in the world, I would much rather have nothing to do with them. I was only induced to meddle with them on account of their extreme want, and now as they are in fact none the worse for having met me, I would rather decline engaging them, except as a matter of charity to them, for I don't think I can make a shilling on them. Barnum did not intend to renege on his offer, despite his diminished enthusiasm. He advised the agent, If, however, they conclude to accept my offer, I will stick to it. That is to say, give one pound per week for one year, with privilege to have them two years, they to exhibit whenever and wherever I please, to be entirely under the direction of myself or agents, the mother to take care of the children and clean and dress them according to my orders, to drink no liquor, and I to board, clothe, lodge, and transport them all to and from America, provided she wishes to return at the end of my engagement. Wages to commence on their arrival in New York. Until April, or such time as she sails, she must take care of herself, though upon her signing a writing to the above effect I will lend her by degrees ten pounds to keep her till she sails, the ten pounds to come out of her first wages. If she concludes to go, I think I had better have a first-rate large painting of them made to stick outside in America. If you know the proper painter, you may get it done for me, if you please, after we have signed writings. Burnham must have received a prompt response, for on January 31st, he was able to tell his museum manager, Fortis Hitchcock, that he had just received a letter from my agent in Glasgow relative to the fat children. It is agreed that they sail for America about 1st April. And in the meantime, I shall have a splendid painting made of them, representing them exhibiting before the Queen, Prince Albert, and the royal family, and I shall have five Highland dresses made for them to exhibit in. In addition to Scottish Highlander costumes, Barnum also had another plan to ensure success both at the American Museum and as a standalone show on tour. The brothers were not simply to be displayed in costume, but would entertain visitors as well and Barnum had the idea they could perform a question-and-answer trick. He asked the agent in Glasgow, Would those fat boys know enough to learn the secret of talking together, asking and answering questions on the mesmeric, as you and I talked about the first time I had the pleasure of seeing you? A few days later, Barnum shared with Hitchcock that he had also purchased the secret by which Mrs. Hannington, the mysterious lady, answers questions, describes objects, etc., with her back turned to the audience, and this secret is being imparted and learned to the fat boys, so that will be a great feature, and will enable me to make a show of them alone in various parts of America. Following up on the happy family topic in episode 27, we find more details about Barnum's plan in his January 31st letter to Hitchcock. His previous letter, dated January 25th, had explained originator John Austin's secret to creating a caged menagerie of birds and beasts living in harmony, and in his go-to-it manner, Barnum instructed Hitchcock to start right away training animals and preparing a large cage for the museum. In a day or two, the animals and birds all get the same smell and scent, and they cannot distinguish their natural enemies. He advised making the cage as wide as possible to attract more viewers, but also very deep. If you start with 20 animals and birds, it will make a decent show. Then increase them as fast as you can till you get about 60 or 80, which will perhaps be as many as we can afford to feed. In caring for the animals, he noted, You must cover the cage on cold nights so as to keep them warm, and when once got up, the only expense is their food, 
and that must always be clean and good. Barnum then turned again to the matter of advertising. He had previously told Hitchcock that the display would be advertised as having been brought from England. In this next letter, he provided a John Austin handbill that Hitchcock was to copy verbatim. He wrote, Fearing that you had lost the bill of the happy family, I have procured another and sent it enclosed. The cut you can copy if you can't get up a better one, and I doubt whether you can. I advise you to copy the whole bill. Steal the whole of it, head, shoulders, body, tail, and all. Take the name of Austin and Son, the reputation of his having been before the Queen, etc., his having devoted so much time and attention to solving the great experiment, his having at last succeeded in taming and training the animals, and all that gammon. Pausing to study the woodcut illustration, Barnum noted that it showed several monkeys, the most challenging of the species to manage in a happy family exhibit. Barnum knew Austin did not show more than one because that would be asking for trouble. It goes without saying that in his own ads, Barnum frequently concocted images and made claims that were less than truthful, yet he pointed out the false advertising of multiple monkeys to Hitchcock, writing, That is all very well, but he never puts but one in the cage, and that he takes out at night, the raccoon ditto. We stand corrected for having mentioned in the previous episode that the presence of an American raccoon in Barnum's display would be a giveaway that this was not the Englishman's happy family collection. Apparently, Austin had acquired an American raccoon. In our next episode, we will learn more about the anatomical Venus Barnum had commissioned for his American museum and the delicate issue of how to present this revealing exhibit to the kind of public he wished to attract with moral and educational entertainments. Thank you for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. Support for this episode is provided by the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum and based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinna, and narration is by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our COO. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and visit our YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Connect with us on social media and let us know what you think. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures with P.T. Barnum.